A strategically small church is one that recognizes its unique advantages of being small, and instead of trying to fix it or to hide it or overcome it, they just lean into those unique strengths. Welcome back to season two of the Rural Renewal Podcast. We're so glad that you have come back to join us today. Chris, uh, can you tell us what have we been up to over the past few months since we've been gone? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for um, thanks for inviting me. Or I'm just glad to be back. I don't know where I was going with that sentence. Uh, it's first time podcasting in a while. Uh, anyways, we, we went on sabbatical this summer. We've done a lot of stuff since the last time we recorded. But one of the things we did was go on sabbatical this summer. Um, uh, so it was a really good uh, first sabbatical we've taken from our church. Uh, we've, we've The church we serve, we've been there almost 14 years now. Um, actually, by the time the podcast comes out, it might be 14 years. Um, but yeah, and uh, we uh, took a trip around the country. What do we do, Kathleen, on our trip? We did a national parks trip. So we visited 11 different national parks over the span of six or seven weeks. And we camped in a tent for, I think, 46 nights last summer. And it was <laughs> <Yes>. just, <laughs> it was a little crazy, but it was a good kind of crazy. Hey, when, and we when you live had in a so much fun. Place, you, uh, and you get a chance to take a sustained break, you want to go somewhere more rural. So we had to go to national parks, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, we didn't have cell phone reception the whole time. So that was a good thing. It was a good thing for sure. For sure. Uh, so, and if you, if anybody listening to this, if you're a pastor and you haven't taken a sabbatical Mm. and you need someone to be, uh, be an ally in that feel free to to reach out to us because uh it was just really really good for us as pastors but also good for our family all together we we just had such a good time to connect and um enjoy god's creation together yeah it was it was amazing you know uh, as kathleen said we sent 46 nights in a tent it was a little crazy i've been camping my whole life but uh, uh kathleen uh, you uh, did not grow up camping but you did have a camping experience as a kid or as a youth i should say uh I think you should share a little bit about what that was like on the podcast. <laughs> it's a good story. Yes. Yeah, so um, the high school I went to, it they had a requirement for sophomores uh, called and sophomore. When she was a sophomore, we were already dating. So I very much remember yeah. this. Yeah. 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 And uh, <laughs> he had to listen to it when I got back. I did. So uh, in December, we had uh, a two night uh, camping experience. We had to hike in with all of our stuff in and there was like two feet of snow and we had to make lean twos and make all our own meals and everything. I was miserable the entire time. I did not have a good experience. My body is not built for that kind of camping. Um, and so I was in a lot of pain and I just did not. I did not do well. And so I came back and I was like, that was awful. And Chris is like, that's not the type of camping I do. So don't judge all camping by that experience. Yeah, that's uh, oh, that's very true. We, we did uh, when we were at Rocky Mountain uh, over July 4th weekend, uh, throw snowballs, but uh, there was no actual snow except for in patches way up high on the mountains. Uh, so no, no, no winter camping this summer. It was kind of chilly a few times. Yellowstone was pretty chilly in the morning, it was. but uh, not not two feet of snow. So. Yeah. No, uh, not two feet of snow. Anyway, <laughs> um, so we are so excited about our guests this season. And our first guest is uh, 
Brandon J. O'Brien, and he is the Senior Director for Content Development and Distribution of Redeemer City to City, uh, and he's co-authored uh, several books, uh, one of them being The Strategically Small Church. And Chris, do you want to tell how we first met Brandon? Yeah, so not very long at all after we first uh, moved to Vermont and, and started here in South Londonderry, which is uh, where we pastor now and is our the only place we've ever pastored, at least um, uh, kind of in uh, in a non-interim kind of way, I guess, or uh, intern kind of way. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Um, and so uh, not long after that, uh, our we there was a retreat uh, put on at a local uh, a retreat center um, in Vermont uh, that Brandon came and did the uh, kind of led the retreat. And uh, we talked a lot about what it meant to be a strategically small church. Uh, most of the churches and uh, we're, uh, we, we serve an ABC America Baptist church and most of the churches in our region, which is Vermont and New Hampshire are smaller churches. And so uh, we, uh, it was a great retreat. Uh, I, I still often take a lot that I learned from that retreat uh, home with me. And uh, I think Brandon has a lot of wisdom to share for, for those of us who find ourselves. Uh, certainly there are rural churches that are larger, but a lot of our rural churches uh, are small. And actually most of our churches in general are small churches. It's one of the things he actually mentions in the podcast is, and so, yeah, uh, this is, this is, he was really helpful in, in framing a mindset that helps you do effective ministry in those circumstances. Yeah, for sure. And um, I, it, it was a really good conversation that we had with him. Uh, I think for me, uh, one one takeaway um, that I hadn't thought about before is uh, he was talking about how Paul in the New Testament, he never talks, uh, he never like chastises the church for being small. He 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 says a lot of uh, straightforward yeah. things about a Paul lot of things. Paul has some issues with the with the early church, but that's not one yes. of them. Yes. <laughs> No. And I was like, oh, that that's so encouraging. So I, I really appreciated that. How about you, Chris? Yeah, I uh, uh, certainly that I thought was very helpful. I also he talked about uh, that even when God gives us uh, what we think we need or what we think we want. Right. You know, even if God uh, were to give us maybe growth that we would want or something like that or volunteer, different volunteers or different people, whatever it might be. Uh, that the history of of certainly the church, but and our own personal lives, and of all of, of scripture stories about this, is that we often uh, yearn for something more or different uh, than than what God blesses us with, and so uh, there is a certain spiritual discipline to be uh, to learning to uh, be content with what God has actually given to us uh, in in the moment. So that was really helpful. Um, one just quick note before we get to the interview, uh, you'll notice we have a different setup uh, this year. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that we noticed last year was uh, getting, for sound purposes, Kathleen and I uh, tried to share a mic in this very small like closet space. It really was a closet space. And it was great. It was good for sound, um, but it was very uncomfortable, I think, and a little awkward for us the way that we kind of had to situate ourselves. So to, uh, in order to try to change that this year, we went to a two mic setup. And so we're actually, even though obviously we live in the same house, uh, <laughs> Kathleen <laughs> is at home. She's in what's sort of our home office slash playroom area. If you if she turned the camera to the right, do not do that. But if, you, if she did, no. she, no, you would see that the kids' toys are all over the place. Uh, and I am in our office at church. So uh, this is going to be the setup we go with um, because hopefully it'll help with the audio uh, and uh, us not being quite so uncomfortable in the way that we were sitting. <laughs> 
Yeah, for sure. First time podcasters, sure. so, what can we say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the first season we were we were doing a lot of learning. Yes. This year, uh, I feel we're a lot still more gonna confident. Be doing a lot of learning. Let's be honest. True, uh, but, true. But we have learned you know, some things already. That's a good thing. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, we're just so glad to be back and to have you join us. Uh, and um, now we'll listen to the interview with Brandon J. O'Brien. like to welcome Brandon J. O'Brien today to the podcast. Uh, Brandon, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did God bring you to the place you are in and call you to the work that you do now? Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me uh, on the podcast. Um, I work right now with uh, Redeemer City to City, which is an agency that supports church planting in global cities. Um, and I have been um, doing some sort of ministry-related work all my adult life. I was in uh, ministry as a solo pastor in small rural churches in college and just out of college, um, and then worked in a church-related um, uh, college degree program after that, and then um, eventually in uh, the work I'm doing now. And I think in all of those places, one of the things that has been um, a kind of a common denominator is I'm always very interested in the realities of local church ministry and how they change from place mm. to place. So the challenges of rural ministry are different than challenges of suburban ministry or different from the challenges of urban ministry. They're not more or less challenging or more or less important, but they're always different. Um, and I find that sort of uh, the, those unique experiences and things kind of endlessly fascinating. So I think my interest in context and the context of ministry and the unique challenges of ministry, I think um, I, I, I receive it as a gift that God has me in the work I'm doing now because I get to kind of revel in those unique contexts for ministry and the work that I'm doing. Um, and I'm very glad that my experience in, um, in writing and in, other, and in ministry has kept me connected to folks who are doing rural ministry as well. Most of my emphasis now is in cities, um, but I'm very interested in the work that you guys are doing uh, and increasingly see a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences and the differences are obvious. I think a lot of similarities between being a small church in a city and being a small church in a, in a rural place. And so I find that fascinating as well. Yeah, certainly. Uh, one of the things that is uh, that we've talked when we've talked with people in the past on the podcast as well, uh, the that that sense of context and understanding your context and celebrating your context. I, I, that's one of the things I, right. that came has come across to me in your work is that uh, that uh, you should really take advantage of the context that you have and not see it see not see it for its challenges. There are going to be challenges, of course, but really see it for the opportunities it brings. And I appreciate that about your work. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And if it, uh, hopefully it makes ministry more effective, but it certainly should make it more enjoyable mm -hmm. if you uh, just accept the fact that you are pastoring the church that you have and not some other church, um, that you're called to lead the people you have and not some other people, um, then I think that that can help cut down on frustrations instead of focusing on what isn't there. You focus on what is there. Um, and I think once you start to do that, you see a lot more gifts where you used to see liabilities. And I think that that is, um, yeah, a really important shift that people can make. 
That makes a lot of sense. Um, so you wrote the book, uh, Strategically Small Church, and uh, I read it. Both of us read it years ago, and then I reread it for this interview. Um, and it's not just about the rural church, <clears throat> but we know that most many rural churches are small. Uh, what do you mean by strategically small? Yeah, that's a great question. I I feel like I've been trying to answer that question since the book came out in 2010, and I don't know if it's ever completely satisfactory to people, but um, <clears throat> I think it's always easiest to make um, comparisons and say what I don't mean. I, I have been in small churches. Uh, the smallest church that I ever spoke in was literally a family unit. It was about eight people, and they were all b- blood relatives. Um and they really didn't want anyone else to join them. They kind of wanted a family chaplain. That is a small church, but is not strategically small. It's just kind of maybe ornery small. Um, the uh, And I've been in churches that uh, were um, small and doing all they could to grow. And often in their effort to grow, were sort of overlooking some of the advantages that were at their fingertips because they were small. So they only saw liability when they looked at this small church and were trying to kind of viewed smallness as a problem to solve or to overcome rather than as a unique advantage. And I would say that's not strategically small, but being strategically small means recognizing that small size does have its advantages, that there are things small churches can do more easily because they are small um, or that there are kinds of people that a small church can reach because they are small, that larger churches may have a harder time uh, doing or certain kinds of ministry, cultural engagement, et cetera, that may be more um, natural or there may be lower barriers of entry for smaller churches than for larger churches. So I think a a strategically small church is one that recognizes its unique advantages of being small. And instead of trying to fix it or to hide it or overcome it, they just lean into those Mm. unique strengths um, with the expectation that that will help them be more effective in ministry, but it may not grow their total attendance numbers over time or something, if, uh, if that makes sense. So I don't know if that's a more satisfactory answer than I've given in the past, but <laughs> that's, that's the way I look at it. Uh, <laughs> I know just the, the idea certainly uh, spoke to me. I, one of the things that we find beautiful about the, where, where we happen to serve um, is that uh, our kiddos, uh, um, our, our, both of our parents live uh, not a two hour drive away. So we get to see our, uh, the kids' grandparents quite a bit, but uh, not all the time. And one of the things that we have really appreciated about our local, uh, local church is the way that there's just this whole group of people who embrace them as as kind of uh, in a family kind of sense, right? Who who are there to watch them when when we need them, somebody to grab them from school, or who are there to you know invite them over for church, you know, for lunch after church, and uh, just take on that role. And that's uh, something that, uh, especially as uh, maybe maybe that. Hopefully that happens in big churches too, but I think it's it's a unique opportunity in small churches where you really do get to know the people that you're there with. So, I think that's right, and I think that the opportunity to connect across generations is somewhat unique to smaller churches because um, what can often be viewed as a liability is that you don't have the the personnel or the space to offer a bunch of age-specific ministries. I think the positive there is that means that people who in a larger church would be separated at the door and never interact with each other have an opportunity to develop relationships in a smaller church so that you actually know what 
children you could potentially invite over for lunch after, you know, if you don't ever meet them, you just don't ever know. So I think that proximity that feels like a downside actually gives you lots of opportunities for community that may be harder, not impossible, but you'd have to like, you'd have to create those opportunities in a larger church where they happen pretty naturally in a smaller one. Yeah, I I, uh, definitely agree with that. And I think it's helpful that this summer we, Chris and I took uh, a sabbatical and um, we visited a bunch of different churches in different situations. And um, it, it was interesting to see our kids reaction to being in a different setting and that they really missed our local church uh, in a way that I wasn't necessarily expecting. But I think that's a beautiful thing that uh, yeah. they wanted to be back with, with our church family when we came back Um so I think we can really lean into that and make it make it what it is and not feel bad because, you know, the youth group isn't bigger or something like that. That's right. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so what did you learn about in terms of evaluating the ministry of rural churches through the writing process? Yeah, well, I alluded to this a minute ago. The, the book came out originally in 2010. So it's been a long time. Um, and I think I learned some things in the writing, but have really had an opportunity to learn quite a bit more since then in interacting with pastors in rural settings and, um, groups that serve, uh, rural churches specifically. I think one of the things that, um, it's really important to say out loud is that there's a lot of conversation often about how cities are changing or certain parts of the country are growing in population and there's increasing diversity, et cetera. Um, I think that less often it's the case that we talk about how much rural America is changing. Sometimes it's changing because some rural communities are shrinking. And so there are fewer people there than there used to be. Um, I think there are some rural communities that are actually growing, but they're growing with transplants from outside the area who move in for cheaper real estate or for other kinds of things. And that affects dynamics in town, but it also means that suddenly there's a group of people in town that pastors and churches may not immediately know how to engage or communicate with. Um, I think one of the places where I see a lot of similarities between rural churches and urban churches is that often the experience of the people who attend are very similar in the sense that they feel like they don't have access to good, um, you know, affordable groceries or it's a long, you know, they have to travel a long way to get food. They have to, they may be underemployed and there's not a lot of good opportunities in the neighborhood or in the region. Um, they feel under-resourced when they look at larger suburban ministries and they don't have as much to work with. So the experience of being in the rural place and being urban place are very different, but the congregations may actually wrestle with very similar Mm. kinds of things. And to the question about evaluation, I think um, it would be ridiculous to judge the effectiveness of a church in terms of its growth in numbers. If the area where the church is located is shrinking in numbers, right? So like if a, if a town is getting smaller, I would expect churches to get smaller. Um, if a, if a town is growing in terms of people moving in from, uh, somewhere for business, then I would expect that church should also reflect the growth of people from outside of the town who are new. Right. So I think the, evaluative question is looking at the community, looking at the needs of the community that are unique to that one. Is it lack of resources? Is it 
you know, our young people are moving away? Is it our uh, young people are moving in? What is it? And designing ministries that actually address those particular unique challenges, rather than simply replicating a ministry program that exists somewhere else. And you're told that this is what you should do to make your church bigger, right? Um, I remember at some point talking about small groups at a small church and they're like, we are a small group. Like we don't, (laughs) if we subdivide into smaller groups, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, but the church growth material says that the way you grow a church is through small groups. And so sometimes you'll feel pressure to replicate a model that works somewhere else without paying attention to the unique challenges or needs in your very local context. And I think that um, if a small church is paying attention to its context and responding to it in helpful ways, then that's success. Um, And it may not look like success looks in other places, um, but that's where it takes a little bit of imagination to, um, to say in our rural setting, the following things being true, then we will know we've been effective if we do the following things. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to think really specifically locally, uh, so that we're not basing our success on generalizations that don't, don't apply to our context. Yeah, I think that is uh, so helpful. One of the things that I uh, have found to be true of our particular location here in Southern Vermont, uh, Vermont is kind of has, has been a very de-churched area for a long time. And so uh, uh, even the people who come to church uh, are don't speak Christianese, I would say, is kind of to use a language, to use a term from... 15 years ago, but anyway, uh, they, uh, and so, uh, one of the, one of the things that we had to come to realize, and we're from new England, so it wasn't that strange to us, but was that, you know, the way that they talk about growth in their faith is not probably going to sound like how you might expect Mm. it to, to sound. Um, if you were talking to somebody who's from a more where, 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 kind of Christian ideas and, and understandings are kind of a wider part of the culture and the values there. Uh, and so they, they kind of bleed in anyway, but for, for our people here, you know, uh, you really kind of have to hear, listen for the specific ways that, Oh, I, they're telling me that they're loving their neighbor there. They're not using those mm-hmm. words because yeah. those would be weird words out of their mouths, but, but they really are. And you just have to be aware of that with the people that you're interacting with. I love that. And I, I think one of the, one thing I'm hearing you say that I think is really important is that you have to learn to see grace and growth where it's happening. And it may be that you're training or whatever you're, you know, reading or, you know, doing on your own for personal development is kind of conditioning you to see one set of, um, you know, evidence that growth is happening, but you need somebody to help you see locally what's going on. That's good. And maybe it's a, a pastor who's been there longer or somebody in your congregation who's been there and has some like longitudinal say it used to be this way, but now it's this way. Yeah. And all you can see is your tenure, right? The three years yeah. or five years, whatever it is, and you don't get the benefit of time. But I think that's a, a really important point to say, we think growth looks like these five check boxes but if somebody's not using that language or if our people aren't at the starting point that this list of things assumes then they're not going to hit those boxes but that doesn't mean 
growth isn't happening. And I think that that's a really, that's a helpful reminder. Uh, you write, uh, our dominant narrative of success is not supported by the story of the New Testament church. Can you explain what you mean by this? I was recently, I had a, a, a gift this summer, was able to visit Ephesus um, in, in Turkey, where I had been before, but hadn't been in 20 years. And in the 20 years since I was there last, they excavated a big area of housing that had was not available last time. So you could go into these homes uh, that have been partially recreated and um, kind of get a sense of what it would be like to be in a city house um, of a wealthy person, for example. A wealthy person have a place in the country. It'd be bigger. It'd be designed differently. But in a city, this is what uh, someone like you know, Lydia, the cloth merchant would have owned a house like this. Mm -hmm. Right. So you go in and you walk in and on the one hand, I was overwhelmed by the fact that it is, uh, there's running water, like there's pipes in the walls that bring in water and fill up bathtubs and like, it's kind of amazing. And the scale of some of it was really enormous. When you imagine this work being done by stucco and tile and whatever, but I was also kind of overwhelmed by the fact that it was pretty small. And if one of these spaces, one of these public spaces was full of people on a Sunday morning for worship, it would have been 40, 50, 60 people at the most. Um, and that kind of got me thinking about Paul's letters and about the fact that he references people pretty regularly by name mm -hmm. in the letters, but always by first name. He doesn't seem to need to give a lot of information to identify who do I mean when I refer to this person and say, Junia, everybody does wait, which Junia it's just the, the, the Junia. Right. So I think there's the, um, there's all these kind of this evidence. If we will look that the churches in the new Testament, the churches that Paul planted, that Peter pastored, that Titus, Timothy, etc., pastored were churches that were roughly the size of the median church in America, which is 40, 50 people. Um, that, which is to say that, having a large church is not somehow anti-biblical, like it goes against a biblical value or principle. But I think if we look closely, we get the sense that most of the congregations in the New Testament, as it's recorded, were small ones. And we get a little bit distracted in the book of Acts by things like 3,000 were added to their number or 2,000 believed or whatever. But that's a that's kind of like a conference, not a congregation. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of people gathered outside for something and a whole bunch of them believe, but then they don't sleep there and eat there and go, they go home or they go back to smaller congregations. And those congregations, if you just kind of take the implicit data in the, in the New Testament, are small ones. Mm -hmm. um, it's also the case, I think, that most of the time when Paul is talking about the church in Rome, he's not talking about a single congregation in Rome. He's talking about a bunch of small congregations that meet throughout the city, all of which make up the one sort of singular church in the city. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we think in those terms, the number of Christians in Rome may have been pretty high, but the number of Christians meeting at any one place in the city at a given time would have been pretty small. Um, and we know that again from archeology span and from the text, just kind of reading between the lines. And maybe last, I just always find it fascinating that Paul lists a whole lot of problems that the churches are having in the new Testament. They're backbiting and they're gossiping and they're cheating and they're stealing and they're sleeping around and they're doing all that. And 
he never ever lists being small as one of those problems. Mm. Like you're not big enough. You should grow. Like, why aren't you getting, why aren't you seeing better numbers? Right. And so I think that I've just find it fascinating that we, we have a kind of standard idea of what success should look like. And that, that measure of success, the only place we can find it in the new Testament is in those handful of passages and acts but even those are very incomplete and partial set of information about the larger picture. Uh, and I, and I, this isn't in the book, but I've done some thinking on this recent, uh, you know, more recently and over and over again in the outside the new Testament in the rest of the Bible, large size is often a liability as far as God's concerned, mm-hmm. because when you have a big army, for example, you can convince yourself that the reason you won that battle is because you have a big army. Mm. And so I often kind of come back to the story of Gideon where Gideon reluctantly finally agrees to go in to lead the people into battle. And God, he gets an army together and God says, your army is too, too large Mm. to which Gideon's got to be thinking you're really bad at this because (laughs) nobody is thinking I need a smaller army. Um, but his explicit reason mm-hmm. is if you go into battle with an army this size, you might think that you won. Mm-hmm. I need you to know that I won. Yep. So you're going to go in with a smaller group. Uh, and so I think that we we like size for the same reasons we all like wealth, because the more you have, the less you have to trust yep. God to do <laughs> you know, what he says he will do. Um, and I don't think anybody in large churches is thinking that way explicitly. I'm, I'm just saying that I think we uh, have created a, an ideal that really isn't supported by the um, examples or models we see in the scriptures. In fact, those models and examples give a very different picture. And the picture they give is of churches, I think, that are kind of normal in America right now. Um, so I, I'm not as current on all of this information. I've been looking at it recently. But I think since 2020, the best numbers I can find suggest that two thirds of churches in America have less than a hundred in regular attendance. So the, the overwhelming majority of churches in America have fewer than a hundred people meeting regularly. And even then we have in our minds that the typical church is large and that most churches are getting bigger and therefore ours should be too. In fact, small churches are just typical churches. Um, and so there's a part of me that is kind of wanting to move away from the language of small church because it, it's like it puts it in a niche category. Mm. Really large church is the niche category. Mm. Very few churches are large. Most of them are not. Um, and I think that that's true now, but it's also true in the Bible. And I find that encouraging in the in, in some ways yeah certainly actually as you were mentioning gideon we uh, right before we went on sabbatical we uh, preached uh, uh uh several weeks on gideon and uh, uh, the amazing part about the story is as as the armies come around him uh actually after they win the battle with the 300 things start to go terribly wrong um, almost mm. instantly as soon as the numbers actually increase. And uh, not, yep. not, again, not to say there are certainly uh, uh, it's, it's not as if there's something inherently wrong with doing church in a big way, but, um, but there, that's right. it is, it is interesting. That's a, that's a wonderful example of, of, of God mm. kind of working in the opposite direction numbers wise that we would expect. Mm. And yeah, uh, really helpful. I, I think um, I'm thinking of a church that recently just uh, was, on the smaller side and then exploded uh, and people are coming in 
huge groups and um, God's doing a lot of really great things. Um, but I, I know someone who's in leadership and uh, the struggles that they're having are not like they, they still have the struggles. It's not like they, they somehow arrived. And I think in our heads, when we're in a smaller church, we think, oh, if we just get, you know, 30 more people, um, all of our problems will go away. No, actually, yeah. there'll be different problems um, and sometimes <laughs> exactly. even harder problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's exactly right. Um, it's but it's always. Uh, yeah. It's hard to acknowledge that the thing that you want is going to bring you grief uh, when the thing that you have is currently bringing you mm. grief. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's some soul work to do there with learning to be um, content. But also, you know, my wife and I talk about this a lot, that there are things that we receive as blessings. And then within a short amount of time, we can convert them into burdens. And I think that, you know, a lot of people will start in a ministry and recognize, gosh, it's a blessing to be in this small church. And then over time, that blessing kind of sours into a burden and nothing has changed mm. except your perception of it. Um, and so then you start to think, well, if this changed and this changed and this changed, then we'd be fine. If that happened, if God gave you those things, it would be very likely that within six months you would say, you know what, if we just had this and this and this, so true. everything would be so better. True. <laughs> so I think, and, and that's not because we're wicked, it's because we're human yeah. and that we have a hard time remembering that, um, yeah, that the things that we had were sufficient mm. um, and then and they were a gift mm. and instead we want kind of what's next. Um, I'm rereading accidentally uh, – through Deuteronomy, I say accidentally because apparently I started last January reading through Deuteronomy because I keep getting Facebook <laughs> messages from last year. It's like last year on this date, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I was reading this then too." Um, but I'm just struck over and over by how God reminds the people uh, that the biggest thing that they can do wrong is forget. Mm -hmm. um, that forgetfulness is the sort of root of unfaithfulness mm -hmm. for them. That if you forget what God has done for you you will either become bitter about God or you'll think you did it yourself. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't go the way you want, it's God's fault. If it does go the way you want, it's because you were so smart. And neither of those things is accurate. You have to remember that God did these things. And so I think in ministry, that's especially important. And that the the margin for error seems really small and or the, the margin seems slim in smaller churches because if you're barely making the mortgage or you're barely paying your staff or whatever, you know, every family contributes to that in a in a really significant way where in a larger church maybe it seems that the margins are a little wider um that you could take some risks or you could have some losses and you could still kind of do things but i think that um that it is easy to forget that that all of that provision is the lord's provision it's not our cleverness ultimately mm -hmm. it's not our you know um programming ultimately and when we forget that we despair and so i've just kind of reminded that that is a human issue that goes back at least to deuteronomy <laughs> where god knew when i give you this thing that you want mm -hmm. if you forget that i gave it to you you're not going to know how to handle it and i just keep coming back to that and thinking that there's a lot of rich reflection in that for pastors of churches of any size, but probably especially or in a unique way for pastors of smaller churches. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think um, we, I don't know. What did you, what do you think, Chris? Yeah, I think that I, I was, we, we do 
move right along to the next thing. If we, you know, if, if, if God does something wonderful in our lives, you know, hopefully, I hope, first of all, sometimes even in the moment we miss the wonderful grace that God bestows on us. But um, when we, even when we notice it, uh, it, it, we do have this tendency and and you see it again and again in scripture. I mean, uh, you know, the Israelites are, are delivered out of Egypt and they grumble and we read those scriptures and say, how could they do that? And uh, then we do it ourselves. So (laughs) exactly. (laughs) How could we be surprised that they would do that? <laughs> so how could it be otherwise? Yeah, exactly. How could they do anything other than that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's great. Uh, you explore authenticity versus excellence in worship, but also in how we do church. How can the small church embrace authenticity in a way that represents who they are as a community of believers faithfully living out the Great Commission? Yeah. It's funny, this question is interesting because I think I've seen this again recently on Twitter, some sort of conversations about excellence and in ministry, and it, it seems to kind of come back around. And I do believe um, that um, people doing things to the best of their ability honors God. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, um, you know, in Exodus, I guess, you know, the, the, the craftsmen that build the temple and the elements for worship and all that do it do it to the best of their ability. But I think that there is a tendency in um, ministry as in other things that to, to not focus on people's contribution, but to fo- focus on the results. So it's sort of like the difference between being healthy and being thin, right? Mm-hmm. You can say that like you should exercise and you should do those things to be healthy, but thinness is a different goal. And so I think doing things to the best of your ability is one thing. Excellence is not the same thing. So you should make your best contribution and it may not be excellent in the, in the sense that it's by comparison to other things done by other people, it, it exceeds those things right and so i think our goal should be to do everything we do the best that we can i think sometimes smaller churches fail to do that Mm. so the things that they could do better that it doesn't take a lot of time to get people together for a work day to clean up old piles of papers and to do things that would make a big difference there's nothing wrong with having every being hospitable in your space by making it a good clean space but does it mean that you need a coffee bar with you know, can, you know, the latest technology, no, it doesn't mean that. Right. So as long as, as long as excellence means making the best of the things that are in your hand, then I'm all for it. Mm. But if it means that we have to be fundamentally different from who we currently are in order to meet some external standards, then I'm, I'm against it. And I think that's where kind of authenticity comes in, which is to say um, that we have to, I think in our churches kind of recognize where we are in ministry. So what kind of, what's our context? Um, and how do we do things in our context that are, that, that honor the context. So authenticity at some level is about honoring the context. I think it's also about honoring ourselves and just saying, we're not particularly good at this thing. So we could either do it to the best of our ability and it's not very good, or we just don't do it at all because we're not, we're not going to do it. Well, Mm -hmm. other churches do it well, we don't do it well, we're just not going to bother. And I think that there is appeal in that, maybe not on mass scale, but certainly in rural places where people are maybe um, especially sensitive to, to, to things that are slick or something as being inauthentic or being, you yeah. know, that sometimes, you know, shiny wallpaper can cover up 
bad craftsmanship, right? Yep. And I think there are a lot of places where people are attuned to that, but I think often in rural places, people are particularly skeptical of the, the shiny thing that comes in and doesn't seem to take much consideration for the context or the people who are there or their preferences. Um, I live in a, grew up in a small town in Arkansas that has changed very rapidly. And I hear some of the people I grew up with very happy about it. Some of the people I grew up with are unhappy about it. But one of the things that I hear from the people who are unhappy is that everything that's being built is being made for people who are showing up, not for people who are from here. Mm. And that for them is like, they don't mean that they want lousy things. They do want e excellent things, but they want those things to be authentic to the place and like to take the locals into consideration. And so I think that um, when we're thinking about context and thinking about doing things the best we can, Authenticity has a lot to do with honoring the local context and honoring your unique contributions. Um, and anything else other than that can be, um, can begin to feel fake, mm. even if it's done well. Mm. And I think that's a, something we want to try to avoid. Yeah, I was just as thinking that I would hope it's one thing if, if someone's saying that about the, the new local chain restaurant that, uh, came in, uh, woe unto us if, we're, if as a church they feel like that of us right that that we are we are That's for right. somebody you know um that one of the things i appreciate as we got a chance to travel a bunch this summer um a lot of churches you know people have uh, over this uh, you see over the years that churches think i was just appreciate a church that looks like it fits within its community whatever that community might be you know um and, and right. even the even the architecture can mean that but you know certainly as you as you get to meet the people there do they do they feel like they're people who uh who who who, who fit in the community and i think that for all of us as churches that should be part of our goal is that you know we we um obviously we are not exactly the same as our culture around us but we do feel like we fit in the spot that we are so yeah, yeah. that's great absolutely you write in uh in your book in other words young people are not looking for another entertaining uh age specific worship experience instead they desperately desire a church that can offer them something they can find nowhere else in the world a family that is good news for the church with eyes to see a family is just what the community of faith is called to be. Uh, can you share with us uh, some unique ways that you've seen churches do spiritual formation in children and youth, especially uh, given, given that situation? Yeah, good question. So I think that this is, you know, this is one of those questions one of those observations, I think it ages well, but we'll see uh, that generations change faster now than they did 50 years ago, I think, in some mm. ways. And so um, I think the basic thing holds here that um, you, you mentioned it uh, at the beginning of this conversation, Chris, that the value of having people in your congregation that can kind of stand in mm. as extended family. Yeah. Um, we've experienced that as adults living in a city and wishing that we had you know, family members close by to say, Hey, could the, if the in-laws could just come over so I could go on a date with my wife or we could go do whatever, you know, that kind of thing. But, but deeper having people who are willing to invest in your children on their own terms. So not as babysitters, but just because they love your children. Mm -hmm. And we've been blessed to find that in the places that we've lived where people would just say, Hey, can we pick up the kids and take them out for a few hours and pump them full of sugar and drop them off? Yeah. And I say, yes, because our kids, don't feel babysat. They feel like they're hanging out with these people who care about yeah. them. And I think that that kind of thing is important. Um, there's a lot of data that suggests that the thing that most predicts 
whether a child who's raised in church will stay in church is the number of relationships they have with adults in the church who are not their parents. So when they only connect generationally, there's a good chance across their own generation, there's a good chance they'll drop out very high rate. But if they have authentic, sincere relationships with adults who are not their parents, they're much more likely to stick around when they leave. And I think that's in part because if you only ever go to age specific programs, you've never really been to church. You've just been to age specific programs Mm. because the church is kind of that thing that you're left with when people aren't catering to you anymore. Right. It's the like big church is just the way everybody else does it. If you've never experienced that, you don't know what it is. You don't know how to look for it. You don't know what you're missing. But if you have those connections with adults who aren't your parents over time, then it feels really natural to join them in that space, you know, at some point. Um, I see a lot of good work. I should say not a lot of good work because I think this is a hard topic. Um, But the good work that I see tries to take spiritual formation of younger people um, beyond the church building and the, and the worship experience into the rest of the world uh, and into the rest of your life. So instead of just saying we do children and youth formation on Sunday mornings for 45 minutes and that's all, it's that we do that, but we also have these times when kids and adults interact and they play cards and mm-hmm. they, or they do whatever. And it's not necessarily explicitly spiritual, but it's formative because it's relational or there's opportunities for older children and youth to volunteer with younger children and connect with them that way, or just to hang out with those younger children. So I think if, if we can, I have more hope for formation of children and youth when I think beyond uh, church programming Mm -hmm. and think more broadly into wider kind of socializing them in the Christian family throughout the week. What does that look like? If you do that, I think that that gives them things, stability and a sturdiness that there's not a lot of other things offering that in the world. And that creates a value that really only the church can, can contribute. I hope that answers your question. I was kind of a rambly I think, <laughs> response. Uh, I don't know if it answered the question, but it was excellent because it, it, it I, I think about, you know, what's one of the things that, you know, it's very hard to tell um, someone who's, in, you know, in their mid sixties or mid seventies, uh, come and volunteer at youth group, right? I that's a hard, yeah. some people feel called to it and they, they do it. But, but if you say to them, um, you know, take this kid out for lunch sometime or play, teach him how to play cribbage or, you know, or something like yep. that, like just such a, so much lower a bar and, and, and to be able to say, you know, that yeah. is, that can be just as form- informative, maybe more informative to their future faith than uh, coming and volunteering. Again, don't come and volunteer at youth group. That's a good thing to do, but I mean, just, yeah, you know, for sure. You know, just such, such power we have to affect those relationships that we underestimate. That's exactly right. And this, uh, this may be a tangent, but you know, we, we had a neighbor across the street who, um, you know, there's a young couple, uh, I'm in my forties, they're in their twenties. And my, they had a young son who just turned two. my kids loved hanging out at their house. Sometimes I was annoyed because the things that they enjoyed doing at that house were things that I couldn't get them to do at my house, like <laughs> yard work, you know, and they're like, Oh, Mr. Richard's going to let us work in the yard. And I'm like, I I'm trying to get you to work in the yard for three years. Yeah. Um, and so I think once I got over the, you know, indignance of uh, the fact that I can't get them to rake 
my <laughs> leaves, but they're happy to rake their leaves. And I think that's something that, again, it's not a, that is not a spiritual connection, but it's a Christian family. Mm-hmm. My kids feel safe with that family. They want to go over and just engage as human beings with that family. And they love hanging out with this toddler who loves, who lights up whenever my kids come around. Like that is a, that's a connection that is infinitely valuable because someday there's a good chance that my kids are going to want to talk about something that they're not sure they can talk about with their dad, but maybe they can talk about with the neighbors across the street, right. Who are also Christians. I trust their advice, you know, et cetera. And so I think that's where we need to sometimes think if formation is just giving youth and children information about the Bible or whatever, uh, then that's a fairly limited vision, but if it's building trust and building relationships so that when inevitably they have a question or they run into something or all this teaching that you're trying to do that feels irrelevant now, someday in the right season of life, it suddenly feels relevant. Mm. Well, I don't want to be the only adult in their life that can meet them in that moment. I hope that there's a dozen adults in their life that can meet them in that moment. Um, and so we're playing the long game, I think, and the, you know, and the kinds of things that you've described that I think small churches can do particularly well are all investments in that kind of future. And if we thought of it that way, then I think you could say, look over the span of a week, all of the touch points that we have, it's fantastic, yep. right? And then you count those as ministry successes, then suddenly the the, uh, you know, the reporting feels a little more encouraging than if you just say, well, we had four in Sunday school this morning. Well, that maybe, but what if you had four in Sunday school and you had 20 touch points during the week, then that's the real win. Right. And I I think just kind of shifting to see Mm -hmm. where good things are happening can, can be a real encouragement. Yeah. I really appreciate I keep, that. Um, I keep wandering from the point. Sorry no, about no, that. No, no, I, oh, no, no, no. I, I think you, the you question... don't know me if you don't know wandering from the point. <laughs> That's all I do. Uh, and no, this is all really good stuff, and it's just so encouraging, uh, encouraging to me. Um, I, I have one last question for you this uh, yeah. today. Um, what is some encouragement that you could give pastors of small churches who might feel inadequate when compared to all the great preachers who we can listen to on podcasts or watch on YouTube? Yeah, man, that's hard. You know, and I, that's really hard. I think that one of the things that, um, I, I think one of the challenges is that in ministry in the U S is that we often measure impact in terms of audiences. Mm-hmm. So how many people are listening to me talk becomes a sort of key metric for success. The thing is there are a number of, of preachers whose sermons that I had, you know, think are fantastic, but when there's a crisis in my family, mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask them to pray for me. And if I did, they wouldn't know who I was. Um, but I have in every church that I've ever been in, including very small churches in cities and in rural places, have had pastors of those churches in my living room praying for my wife and me or for my children or for whatever else. Um, and those are the kinds of um, inputs and interventions that change lives. Mm-hmm. I work in publishing and I work with pastors and I publish material. So I believe that like, content in all its forms is important. Um, But when you baptize, marry, bury, grieve, celebrate with people, um, that's, that's pastoral work. Preaching is, is, is something that we've, 
somehow made to stand in for all of the pastoral work. And I don't think it deserves that place of prominence. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that the real work is showing up over and over and over again um, and being there for people when it matters. And there's no replacement for that. Mm -hmm. Even if somebody is a better preacher than you are, that doesn't make them a better pastor than you are. Um, And I think that that's what matters at the end of the day. Um, I also think that a lot of the preaching that you hear online or on tapes or however people get it these days tends to be kind of generic. And so one thing I think every pastor should do is, you're not preaching to America when you preach, you're preaching to the 20, 50, 200, whatever people that are in front of you right now. So the passage that you're talking about from judges or Ruth or whatever, isn't about how do you apply this in America? It's Mm -hmm. how do these people in front of me, what did they do with this this week? That's what the, that's what preaching is for. And you're the only one who can do that because you're the only one who knows these people in that way. And so I think if you can um, kind of embrace the fact that you're the only person kind of qualified to speak into their life in this particular way, and they may supplement that with podcasts and whatever during the week, but none of those other folks are going to be able to give that to them in the way that you can. Uh, I think that that really dignifies the work that every local pastor does because no matter how big your church is there's somebody with a bigger church and you're the person who has 2000 in worship on a sunday morning half their people are still listening to somebody who has 5000 in their church on sunday morning on a podcast right like yeah. there's no there's not a top here yeah. it just keeps going and going so everybody's kind of in the same boat there but really what you have to give is you can pastor these people in this place at this time and no one else can do that uh and i think that that is not a small thing as someone who has a has both been in ministry and has been regularly ministered to it's the just it's the end time intervention and the right now word and the right now prayer that that's what changes you Mm. um and the other stuff is just you know, food for thought, but it's the, it's the people who show up in your real life that really make the difference. So I hope that that's encouraging. I have, uh, I find it. Yeah. The work that pastors do is hard and getting harder. Mm. Um, and I think that it's important to acknowledge that. Um, but I do hope that all of us who are in ministry in some way can do better at dignifying all the work that everybody else is doing, um, and not add to the difficulty by, saying, well, it would be important work if you were doing this or if you were doing that. It's all important and it's real hard. And um, so I appreciate what you guys are doing and the work you're doing to encourage other pastors as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I I heard, uh, I don't even remember what podcast, so I'm not going to be able to credit it, but I definitely heard uh, a conversation, (laughs) an interview uh, where someone said very similar to you, you know, you're not preaching to America. I said, you know, you're not preaching to your Twitter feed, um, uh, which was, uh, you know, in a small, in a small church, in a rural church, that's incredibly important to remember. I mean, it's anywhere, right? Because it is not, uh, first of all, the Twitter feed is probably not real life in any, (laughs) even close to real life, but whatever it is, it's, it's, uh, uh, yeah, you are preaching to these actual people in front of you. And, uh, 
and yeah. you know they know you especially if you're if you're a smaller church they know you you know them and uh and you can speak to them in ways that that no one else would even be able to even if they were the best you know whatever i don't know what metric that would be if it was jesus himself he would you know he, he would uh you know he knows them so i guess he would be able to speak to yeah. them but uh anyone else right. there yeah. um, would not be able to speak in the same way so yeah yeah that's great well, thank you so much, uh, Brandon. This has just been so encouraging today. Uh, if people want to find you online, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, well, somehow I managed to get uh, all of the things online at Brandon J. O'Brien. So uh, on nice. Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, it's all at Brandon J. O'Brien. And there's a website, brandonjobrien.com. Um, and people can reach out to me there. There's a place to send an email or a message. So um, yeah, I'd love to hear from, from anybody. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brandon. Rule of Renewal podcast is brought to you by Fresh Expressions and the Ascent Movement. Fresh Expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive in the places we live, eat, work, and play by leveraging the creativity and endurance of the inherited church. To learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of church that works in small towns, big cities, and everywhere in between, go to freshexpressions.com slash how to start. To connect with this podcast, you can email us at podcasts at freshexpressions.com. Rural Renewal Podcast is hosted by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Blackie. It's edited by Joel Limbowen and produced by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Morton. Our senior director is Dr. Christopher Becker. If you have learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on social media. Let us end with this prayer for town and rural area from the Book of Common Prayer. Lord Christ, when you came among us, you proclaimed the kingdom of God in villages, towns, and lonely places. Grant that your presence and power may be known throughout this land. Have mercy upon all of us who live and work in rural areas. And grant that all the people may give thanks to you for food and drink and all other bodily necessities of life. Grant those who labor to produce them and honor the land and water from which these good things come. All this we ask in your holy name. Amen.